0: You know, we started this series a couple weeks ago in the book of Galatians, It's one of my favorite books, but one of the reasons why I love Galatians so much is uh, a lot of reason because of how why Martin Luther describes Galatians as his favorite book in that it, it holds forth just the beauty of the gospel and uh, it also just shows just how um, precious Jesus really is to us and he called it his precious little book and it was the book that Continue to inspire him. Continue to sustain him through the Protestant Reformation, and um, it's just a really, really good book and important one for us as Christians. And so, what I want to do is I want to start where we were last week, where we ended in verse sixteen and seventeen, to remind ourselves of uh, what Paul was trying to get through uh, the readers' minds and our minds, and then we'll go right to the text that we're going to have for today, which is through uh, verses through eighteen through chapter two, verse fourteen. So. Let me read this in verse 16. This is about Paul when he was converted and when he was commissioned to be an apostle. That God was pleased to reveal his son to me, Paul writes, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Why I wanted to start there is just by way of reminder of trying to understand what paul was was trying to accomplish in the opening parts of his letter we remember that paul uh, was being challenged as an apostle people were suggesting maybe he wasn't a true apostle because he wasn't one of the original 12 he wasn't eloquent and so they were suggesting not only that he may not have been in, uh, a bona fide legitimate apostle but perhaps even the gospel he preached isn't the correct one And so Paul is going through great lengths to argue with his audience, the churches in Galatia, that no, he is in fact a legitimate apostle and he is preaching the true gospel and he has the authority to do so. And so he lays out some arguments for why he's doing that. And so we see in verse 16 and 17 what he's he's concluding is, look, when I became a Christian in verse 16 and I met Jesus on the Damascus road, I did not immediately consult with anybody. I didn't go anywhere and nobody told me what to preach and how to preach it or anything like that. I went away. I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't go to Peter and Paul and James. I didn't Or Peter and and James and John. I didn't go to them. I went away. I went to Arabia and then to Damascus. And what he's saying is I didn't have opportunity to be discipled and to be taught the gospel, which is another line of evidence of saying I learned the gospel from Jesus directly. I became an apostle by Jesus directly. So I'm going to take a moment just to kind of remind ourselves of what we did the last three weeks to help us get into verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 14. If you remember, Paul's purpose in writing the book of Galatians was because there were troublemakers that had infiltrated the church and began distorting the gospel that Paul preached by saying that one cannot be saved unless they receive circumcision in addition to having faith in Jesus. And so Paul writes this in verse 6 and 7. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So these troublemakers are teaching that you must believe in Jesus, yes, but you also need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And this is a distortion of the gospel. And Paul says, look, you're turning away from the true gospel to a different gospel, and you're deserting God. But then he says in verse 7, look, there is no other gospel, actually. Everything is a distortion. It's the true gospel and then distortions. And so he goes through great lengths to make sure that we understand the gospel he preached is the one true gospel. What astonishes Paul is that so many of the churches he loved decided to desert God and turn to a different gospel And the people who are preaching this stuff, he writes this about them, verse 9. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And we remember from last week, the word accursed, to be cut off, to experience the wrath of God. People who are preaching a gospel which is different than what Paul preached, they are subject to the wrath of God, they're subject to being cursed. Because there is no other gospel. It is what Paul preached and none other. And so the reason why, you know, one of the questions I've always had is like, why can Paul say stuff like this? Like, who does he think he is? You know what I'm talking about? Like, when we were younger, and I don't know if you ever did this, but certainly when I was younger, um, somebody would try to boss me around and it'd be like, well, who died and made you boss? And it's kind of like that with Paul. They're just like, Paul, dude, for real, who do you think you are telling us our business, judging us? What's wrong with you? And so that's a question. That's a legitimate question. Like, Paul, who do you think you are saying this kind of stuff? Well, he writes in verse 11 and 12, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it. To a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, Look, the gospel I preached and the authority to preach it, no man gave it to me. No group of people gave it to me. Jesus gave it to me. Jesus gave me the gospel to preach and the authority to preach it. So that's my source. That is why I'm an apostle. And then we get into verses 18. Through 24. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read a little bit, stop, say some things, read a little bit, stop, say some things. And that will be kind of our pattern for today. So Paul goes through verse 16 and 17 and remind the people after he became a Christian, he didn't go anywhere to learn. He didn't immediately consult with anyone. He didn't go up to Jerusalem to the apostles. He went away to Arabia and then to Damascus. Once again, laying the groundwork that, you know what, nobody taught me this. Jesus taught me. Nobody told me to go do this. Jesus told me to do it. And then it says, then after three years, and so the time differential in verse 18 and then chapter 2, verse 1, these time differentials are going to be referenced from the point when he became a Christian. So then three years, I went up, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Cephas is Peter. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I'm writing to you before God I do not lie. So at first, Paul didn't immediately consult with anyone. He didn't go up to Jerusalem. He didn't visit the Apostles at all. He waited for three years. And after the period of three years, then he went to Jerusalem. What he do? What did he do when he went to Jerusalem after the three years of being a Christian? We see this in Acts chapter nine, verse 26 to 28, where Luke writes, "And when he had come to Jerusalem. Paul attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. Just stop for a second and think about why would they be afraid of Paul? Maybe that whole, like, murderous thing. Maybe how he was going to people's houses and kicking in the door and dragging Christians off in order to be put on trial and jailed and maybe stoned to death. Like, that, that might be scary. And so they were afraid of him because they didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So after three years, Paul goes to Jerusalem. He had very limited contact with the apostles. In fact, he was only there for 15 days. But during the course of that 15 days, people were really hesitant about welcoming him into the church But once Barnabas began to vouch for him, then he began to go freely in and out of the church preaching boldly about Jesus. Now, Paul, because he had limited contact with the apostles, he says here, once again, he's trying to lay on that truth. Look, nobody told me this. Nobody commissioned me. Jesus himself did it. And then it goes on in verse 21 through 24 where Paul says, then he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And that is the northern region. And so if you have Jerusalem here, the northern region is going to be the whole Syria and Cilicia area. So that's where he heads. He heads north. And it says in verse 22, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Which means the churches to the south. So when Paul was in Jerusalem with the limited amount of exposure to the apostles, he eventually left after about 15 days and he headed north. But the churches in the south around the region of Judea and Jerusalem, he really didn't visit them and people didn't know him. They didn't have any personal contact with Paul at all. Once again, Paul is laying on the reality that he was not exposed to the gospel by any person and that no person gave him the authority to preach or the authority to be an apostle. Do You see what Paul is doing? One evidence after another. He's trying to get it through our thick heads Luke. he is an apostle because he met Jesus risen from the dead. So, rumors started to spread. The good kind, though. Verse 23. They only were hearing it said about Paul that he used to persecute us. The one who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. There are rumors swirling about in the southern churches. This guy who once got papers from the chief priests and elders to snuff out the church? The man who actually was a part of the stoning to death of Stephen? You're telling me that this man is preaching the gospel now? Whoa. That's amazing. Verse 24, they glorify God because of me, Paul said. You see, the radical transformation that occurred in Paul's life they rightly concluded could only be because of God. Only God can do that kind of thing. And we see that same kind of testimony today. There are some people whose lives have been so radically transformed that it's undeniable that something happened. We oftentimes listen to testimonies of people who have addictions of various kinds and then radically they're transformed I remember one time baptizing a kid. He was about 20 years old, and we were up at the American River. He said, "I want to be baptized, but you know what? I don't have a testimony." And I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "I didn't, I didn't like get drunk all the time or anything." And I said, "So what do you think qualifies you to get baptized?" And he goes, "I don't know that you partied a lot." What verse is that? (laughs) This is crazy. And so he said, and I, I never forget, it was dejection in his voice. He said, like I grew up in a Christian home and I went to church. Whoa. Why do we idolize people who only have amazing testimonies? We should glorify that God has transformed their life, yes. But did, is it not any less miraculous that God used a Christian home and a Christian church to have this person come to saving knowledge of Jesus? Is it any less miraculous that God in his preserving grace kept this person from sending their brains out? Man, let's glorify God for both testimonies. And yet with Paul, he was the opposite. You know what I'm saying? He was just the, the like unbelievable testimony and they glorified God because of him. In other words, only God could have done this. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Paul recounts when he does go to Jerusalem a second time. He says, then after 14 years, after 14 years since his conversion, he went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with him. Verse 2, Paul says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. And so Paul comes to Jerusalem because of a revelation. What is that revelation about? And we have that for us in Acts chapter 11, where you see in verse 27, now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so there was a revelation that Agabus revealed through the Holy Spirit that there would be a famine. And they decided that Paul and Barnabas, along with Titus, were going to go and make a collection of both resources and finances and they were going to take it to the churches of Judea, the church in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to help offset some of the suffering that is happening because there are the poor and the hungry and they needed help. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus and not only do they deliver the resources and they deliver the relief that was sent, but then Paul says this, not only that, but I set before them and the them is the influential people who we will later see as James, Peter, and John in verse 9. These influential apostles. He says he set before the apostles the gospel that he, had been, that he had proclaimed among the Gentiles. Now picture this for a second. Paul arrives in Jerusalem, hands over the relief, and everyone is just glorifying God and just praising God for the generosity of the church How the brothers and sisters in Christ are actually burdened for one another and are relieving one another's burdens in whichever way they are able. Beautiful moment. And not only that, but Paul sees that this is a great opportunity. He's been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles for 14 years without any influence from the other apostles. And he wants to know, have I been laboring in vain? Have I been just spinning my wheels? Or is my ministry legit? You can see this towards the end of verse 3, he, he sets forth the gospel that he's been preaching for 14 years among the Gentiles in order, here's the purpose, in order to make sure that he was not running or had run in vain. Paul wants to make sure. He wants to check in with the apostles. He wants to make sure that he is honoring Christ by staying faithful to the one true gospel. And you imagine for a moment he's in this intimate private setting with the apostles and he lays out his gospel here's what i've been preaching to the gentiles for the last 14 years 14 years all right what am i missing give me some feedback what are you thinking what are you hearing now we don't know much about the details of what's going what's happening in here but we see something we see something amazing actually verse three Paul says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And we have to do do some work to understand this. Remember the troublemakers in Galatia were saying that, yes, it's really good that you believe in Jesus. It's really good that you have faith in Jesus, but you need faith in Jesus plus circumcision. Because that's what truly saves you. And so think about the strategy and the brilliance of Paul. He's accompanied by Barnabas, who is a Jewish man. He's already been circumcised. And yet they have with them a man named Titus, who is a Gentile, which means he's not Jewish by race nor by religion. He has not been circumcised. And there in the company of all of these apostles, Paul presents his gospel that he's been preaching for 14 years among the Gentiles. And there in the background, there in the shadows, perhaps, is just Titus, like, this is awkward. They know I'm not circumcised. And Paul, as he's laying out the gospel, is thinking it in his mind, and, and this is really important. If the troublemakers are correct, that you need faith in Jesus plus circumcision in order to be saved then the apostles would agree with the troublemakers and then they would turn to Titus and they would compel Titus to be circumcised if he wants to be saved. But if they don't ask Titus to be circumcised, it means that the troublemakers are wrong and that Paul is right, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So now we go back to verse 4, 3, excuse me. But even Titus, who was with me, what? Was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. You see, the apostles in the Jerusalem church had every opportunity in the world to have confirmation that you are saved by faith in Jesus and circumcision. And instead, they don't compel Titus to be circumcised. Therefore, the gospel is you are saved by God's grace Through faith in Christ alone. Now, we as a church studied this. In 2018, January and February, we had a study called the five solas. And the five solas are just the basic doctrines that came out of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, which are, We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Let me say it differently. The book of Galatians. So Paul's right. But then something else happens in this little meeting. Look at this in verse 4 and 5. Verse 4. In this little gathering, this intimate setting where Paul and the apostles are having a conversation, because of false brothers, false Christians, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, why were they secretly brought in? They slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. You see, these brothers and sisters who have been set free in Christ, what that means is we've been set free from the domain of darkness. We've been set free from the dominion of sin. But also what we've been set free from is the slavery of the law. Because the Old Testament law is like an enslavement, because it shows you how you ought to live and what God demands by way of holiness. But the moment you hold up the law to your own life, like a, you're putting your face in a mirror, you start realizing, oh, oh, I'm in deep trouble. And so when you feel that sense of conviction that I am a lawbreaker, I am a transgressor or I'm a sinner, that we feel compelled, I got to do something about this. Something's not adding up and something's not right in my life. And so we all are going somewhere or to someone to try to save ourselves. So if we notice that we are not doing a good job morally or not doing a good job, you know, serving others or whatever it may be, we'll try to save ourselves through accomplishment or we'll try to save ourselves through the accumulation of possessions or we'll try to save ourselves through all kinds of moralistic pursuits or religion. But the reality is, when the law is put before us and we see that we have broken the law, we don't match up to God's holy standard, the enslavement of sin, it begins to increase, as Romans 5 talks about. Sin increases. You become more and more aware of your own shortcomings and sin. But when Christ came, he fulfilled the law in two ways. He fulfilled the law in a positive way in the sense that he obeyed the law perfectly in every way imaginable. And then he also fulfilled the law in its negative um, way, which means when the law is broken, you're supposed to be cursed or punished for it. And even in that way, Jesus fulfilled the law by taking the punishment of law breaking upon himself. So he in a positive sense has fulfilled the law and being obedient for us and in the negative sense in that he took upon himself the punishment for law breaking. And so if we put our trust in Jesus, his death and resurrection will actually wash over us, the effect of it will wash over us through the Holy Spirit, forgiving us of our sins and we will be united with Christ so that his righteousness in keeping the law will be attributed to us and our sinfulness in breaking the law will be attributed to him. So that he absorbs the fullness of the wrath of God and we get to go free. Now the Old Testament law is symbolized in the covenant uh, symbol of circumcision. And so when these people are brought into this little meeting, what they're trying to do is spy out the freedom that we have because of the gospel. And they're trying to convince the little gathering there that they need to go back to the Old Testament law. They need to go back to circumcision. They need to go back to slavery. The entire book of Hebrews, by the way, is against that kind of thinking. Verse 5, will Paul give in? Will he give in to these false Christians who have come into this little meeting to spy it out? To them, he writes, these false Christians, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, Galatians. You know, we live in a world where there's lots of pressure. We have lots of pressure of false gospels that are out there. You're saved by faith in Jesus. Yes, that's awesome. But you're saved by faith in Jesus and baptism. Or you're saved by, Jesus, by, by faith in Jesus. Yeah, we get that. But there has to be a demonstration of power. And so I want to know where are your miracles and where's your signs and wonders? Where's your speaking in tongues? Or, yes, we're saved by Jesus. We get that faith in Jesus, but, but, but you got to have the good works. we we got to see those. And so in every one of those indications, it's, yes, Jesus is really, really, really important. You're, You're saved by faith in him, but it's faith in him plus these other things. And many of us have succumbed to that kind of pressure. And therefore, many of us are asking the question, am I really saved? and we battle with insecurity about our salvation we have very little assurance why because we're not basing our assurance of salvation on the finished work of jesus we're basing our salvation on our unfinished work of obedience and so you wake up every morning going well i don't know man i don't know if i when i prayed the sinner's prayer if i meant it enough i I don't know if that decision when i was six worked or when i was 11 worked or when i was 13 worked or Maybe it was the 8-year-old one. No, maybe it was the 15-year-old when I decided when I was 15. Maybe, maybe when I was 26. That was when it really stuck. Wait, no, I meant it more when I was 21. No, wait, 30. I think I was 34 when I really meant it. Do you see what I'm saying? But when we place our confidence and trust that Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice that he sufficiently, in all that he lived, died, and rose again, that he sufficiently secured redemption for all who would believe in him, you can wake up every morning and simply say this, Jesus is enough. And so you're not saved by the littleness or the bigness of your faith. You are saved because of the object of your faith regardless of how small or big it is, as far as your faith goes. I don't know about you, but that's like the most reassuring thing ever. I can wake up confident. And so when the pressure came for Paul's moment, will they circumcise Titus? They didn't submit. They said, no, we are going to uphold the truth of the gospel. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And then we see verse 6. An opportunity has arisen. Paul's laid out the gospel before these influential apostles. Are they going to add anything? You notice he just he laid it out there in verse 2. He laid out the gospel to make sure he wasn't running in vain. And then he just, he just skips, skips over and just moves on. And then he comes back to it in verse 6. What is the answer going to be? He laid it out. What are they going to say? Are they going to correct him? Are they going to rebuke him? Are they going to add anything? Are they going to subtract anything? What, what are they going to do? Verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they wear makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. Nothing. This is awesome. What this means is as Paul presented the gospel he's been preaching for 14 years among the Gentiles to the apostles and saying, all right, give me some feedback. What am I missing? They say in reply, nothing. You got it. That's exactly what we've been preaching. So we're preaching what you're preaching. You're preaching what I'm preaching. We're all celebrating that we're preaching. We're celebrating your preaching. We're all preaching the same thing. You know, there's a heresy that arose in the first second century that taught that the apostles and Jesus taught one kind of gospel and the apostle Paul taught another kind of gospel. It has recently reared its ugly head, and I would say false. Why do I believe that? Verse 6. The apostles had every opportunity in the world to correct Paul, and you know what they didn't do? Correct Paul. Why? Because the gospel they preached is the same. It's the same gospel. But what they do, verse 7, is pretty awesome. On the contrary, so they don't add or delete anything from Paul's gospel. It says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to this uncircumcised, that is, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that is, to the ethnic Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for the, uh, from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be the pillars or the influential ones, when they perceived the grace that was given to me. I just love that phrase, by the way. They're listening to Paul preach, how he preached the gospel they're looking at this man who once was a church-hating, Messiah-hating, Christian killer. And what do they see? Grace. They just see grace. And Paul knew it. Remember in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, the foremost. He knew everything he did, everything he was, everything he was about to be, everything was according to grace. And the apostles there, they saw it too. It's grace, it's all grace. They don't deserve any of this. But when they saw the grace, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, which means they gave total acceptance. They validated the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And they commissioned them to go to the Gentiles and they, the apostles in Jerusalem and Judea, were gonna go to the circumcised. This is amazing. They could see the effects of the gospel among Paul and the way that it transformed Paul's life. But I imagine too, remember Titus? Sitting in the background. I imagine Paul at some point said, the power of the gospel has saved so many. Here's one of them. And I imagine that they probably asked Titus, tell us about the grace of God. And Titus gave him a rundown of how God's grace has saved him. They perceived the grace of God. Right hand of fellowship was extended. We are in this together. But there's one thing that they did do, verse 10. They did tell Paul this, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The one thing that they did was they told Paul, keep focusing on the poor. Remember the poor. Now, what's really awesome about this is Paul came to Jerusalem in the first place because he was bringing relief to the hungry poor of Jerusalem. And so the apostle said, Look, Paul, what we want you to do, the only thing that we're going to say is keep mindful of the poor. Remember Jesus, he preached the gospel everywhere, spent most of his time preaching and teaching. And who did he preach and spend most of his time with? It was the poor and the marginalized. And so what's really important for us to understand is this, that when we believe the gospel and the gospel takes root in our life, we've repented of our sins and the the attempt that we make to save ourselves by our own works and all kinds of stuff. But instead, we trust the finished work of Jesus. So we turn from ourselves and turn to God. That's what repentance is. That one of the necessary consequences, one of the necessary products of that belief is that you have a grave concern for the justice, for the mercy of those who are poor and marginalized. That's just a natural consequence. That's what we see in verse 10. Paul, your doctrine is completely true. Now we're saying live out your doctrine by remembering the poor. And I want to stop for a second and help us to understand that these things are important. Because there's a difference between what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Let me say it again. There's a difference between what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Now why I bring this up is because the next section in verses 11 through 14... Is no longer a conversation about what the gospel is. It's now a conversation. Actually, it's not a conversation at all. It's really one-sided. It's a confrontation of how we are not, these guys aren't actually doing what the gospel demands of us. Verse 11 says, but when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Just imagine this for a moment. You're sitting and all of a sudden Paul comes in, looks Peter in the face and then opposes him to his face. You're probably like eating your food like. What is about to happen right now? Oh, I better make room for this. Why? Because he stood condemned. Peter stood condemned. So Paul opposed him. What was Peter doing? Verse 12 and 13. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Just imagine that for a moment. Peter, this Jew is eating with Gentiles. Table fellowship. We, we, we spent all of August talking about what topic? Hospitality. Hospitality is taking place. Peter's there eating with Gentiles. Gentiles eating with Peter. Imagine them around the table laughing, enjoying one another's company, welcoming one another into each other's lives. But... When these certain men came from James, when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter hears a knock on the door. Certain men from James come who were people who talked about the importance of circumcision. He sees them. He sees that he's eating with Gentiles who haven't been circumcised. Oh, no. Feels the pressure of people-pleasing. Remember Galatians 1:10, if I'm still trying to win the approval of man, I can't be a servant of Christ. And so what does Peter do in response? He gives into the pressure. He gives into the pressure so much that he distances himself from the Gentiles. He excuses himself from the table fellowship. He breaks off hospitality. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews who were with them acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter just created a mess. Verse 14, Paul says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, then he goes on and confronts them. Let me read that again. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You see, Paul has in his mind the understanding this is the gospel. This is the doctrinal truth. But there is also the reality of what the gospel does. And in this moment, Peter was not living in the truthfulness of what the gospel does. The confrontation arose not because of doctrinal issues, but because of obedience issues. And why I need to say this is because many of us will pit the two against each other. Let me me give you a quick example. Many conservative churches will be really, really concerned that they are holding true to the doctrinal realities of the gospel. And you say, man, what really matters, let's get the gospel right. Let's make sure we have right doctrine. Let's make sure we believe right and we act right and all this kind of stuff in regards to our theology. We've got to make sure. And so let's protect it. Let's not let the, ugh, the icky world in. And then you have the liberal churches who are like, why are you guys stressing out about doctrine? Let's love each other. We've got to love and serve and give mercy and we've got to feed the poor. And we've got to do all this stuff. We have to act out in love. We've got to do this. And what ends up happening in liberal churches, look down on the conservative churches, your stupid doctrine, do something for once. And then the people over here are going, oh, we got our doctrine, your stupid little justice stuff, that's just social gospel. Got em. And then there's this tension. And so we're left to decide what church are we going to go to, doctrine church or serving the poor church. And I would say. Jesus doesn't pit the two against each other. He says, doctrine, significant, important. Obeying, serving the poor, significant, important. And I'm not sure why we tend to want to choose between one and the other. That's one reason why I love Golden Hills, by the way. You ever heard of the Community Outreach Center? The Community Outreach Center was birthed out of the desire that the truth of the gospel compels us to go and act on behalf of the poor and the marginalized. And so we, for 20 plus years, have been serving in downtown Antioch, the poor and the marginalized, fighting for justice. Why? Because the gospel compels us to. So, what's the beef with Paul and Peter? It wasn't a doctrinal issue. They already believed the same doctrine. Verses 11 through 14 is the fact that they weren't agreeing on what the gospel does. So let me come back and say this. We have to differentiate between what the gospel is from what the gospel does. But we must not confuse the two that they aren't their own thing and we just kind of put it all together and we're we're messy with our language. The gospel is one thing. The gospel does one thing. We don't want to unnecessarily separate them so that they don't communicate with each other. But we don't want to confuse the two and to make it one thing. (laughs) I asked the last service, I was like, you guys tracking with me? And everyone just stared at me. I'm not going to ask this service. I don't want to be discouraged twice in one day. (laughs) So let me do this. Somebody asked me, Phil, can you define the gospel? And I said, I can, but I won't. And the only reason I won't is because of this. There's an easy way to do it because there's a real simple way, which is 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through about 5 or 6. The gospel is Christ crucified and risen for our salvation according to scripture. Simple, right? I have a 61 page PDF document front and back of attempts over the course of of church history to define the gospel. (laughs) So, what do I learn from that? There's the basic understanding of the basic contours of the gospel, but then you have the infinite depths of what the gospel is. And we can plunge the depths of the gospel until Jesus returns. And even when we get into the new heavens and new earth, you know what we're going to spend most of our time doing? The same thing the angels are doing now. The angels long to look into the things of the gospel. You did what? Whoa. We're going to spend all eternity plunging the depths of the gospel. There is no bottom. So when people say, can you just define the gospel? No. No. We don't have enough time. But I'm going to give a stab. I'm going to take a stab at it. I have a clock, and so there's more to be said, but I can't say it. (laughs) What is the gospel? Let's start with that first. What is the gospel? It centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God come in human flesh, who was incarnate as a Jewish man, born in Bethlehem and reared in Nazareth. The purpose... For God becoming a man was to rescue a rebellious humanity from sin and its eternal consequences of separation from God. For God created humanity in His own image that we would know Him and enjoy Him. But humanity rebelled and sinned against God, thus incurring a curse from God called the wrath of God, That in effect cut humanity off from relationship with God. When Jesus came, he lived a sinless life in full submission to the law of God so as to fulfill the law in accordance with the promises of God in Scripture, in order to secure for sinners the necessary righteousness to be reconciled with the Holy God. In addition, Jesus was crucified on a cross also to fulfill God's law in accordance with Scripture by taking upon himself the punishment for law-breaking and sin. Jesus, dead and buried, rose from the dead for the justification of sinners, showing that God's justice has been satisfied and to prove that the life and death of Jesus sufficiently secures redemption for those who will repent of their sins and trust in Christ for their salvation. I could go on and talk about Jesus' second coming I could talk about our glorified bodies. I could talk about the renewal of all things and the redemption of even the created world, Romans 8. But again, clock. But that's what the gospel is. What does the gospel do? For those who obey Jesus' demand to repent and believe the gospel, they are born again into a new life by the Holy Spirit called eternal life. And the new life results in a transformation of the mind, the heart, and the will. And at the resurrection and coming of Jesus, a transformation of the physical body will occur as well. This new life is manifested as a life of love for God and for neighbor. What the gospel does is create a new life of love, enabling sinners to now love both God and their neighbor in ways that God has commanded. But this is not the gospel. This is what the gospel does. It is not true to say that the gospel is God loves you. I know that's shocking, but that's not the gospel. God does love. But for us to grasp the immensity of God's love, you must first understand That there's nothing about any of us that warrants God to love us. In fact, we deserve everything but his love. And the sheer immensity and the overwhelming nature of God's love is found in the fact that we don't deserve it. Now when you start talking about sin and when you start talking about our undeserved reception of God's love, now you're getting to the gospel. It's also not true to say that the gospel is that God is transforming the world and we need to participate with him in that transformation. That's not what the gospel is. That is what the gospel does. And we can't confuse the two. Why? Because some people have mistakenly said this, what we need to do is just live the gospel. What? If the gospel is God come in the flesh, crucified and risen for our salvation, how do you live that? Are are you going to become God and die for humanity and rise again from the dead? how How do you plan to do that? So we don't live the gospel. What we live is what the gospel does. Now, what does the gospel do? It transforms us from the inside out. Renewing our mind, renewing our hearts, renewing our wills, and one day renewing our entire bodies. But until the renewal of our bodies, the renewal of our mind and heart and our volition, our will, is supposed to be manifested in the way in which we love God and our neighbor through sacrificial giving and service, highlighting especially the marginalized and the poor. So, why did Paul have to confront Peter? Because Peter was out of step with the gospel. It wasn't they debated about what the gospel is. They were debating about what the gospel does. And when you don't get what the gospel does proper, you're out of step with the gospel itself. Because what the gospel does is intricately connected to what the gospel is. Now, this whole context is that these Jews and these Gentiles were eating because Jesus has brought Jew and Gentile together in a place called the church. And what ended up happening is Peter broke that union. And so by Peter's misconduct, he was out of step with the truth of the gospel. Which is why I say racial issues are gospel issues. Justice issues are gospel issues. Poverty is a gospel issue. Only if you understand the difference between what the gospel is and what the gospel does. So my people... Let's go to Ephesians 2. Clock is tick-tock, tick-tock. When you go to Ephesians 2 and you read verses 1 through 10, it's an explanation of what the gospel is. When you get to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, it's what the gospel does. Listen to what Paul says about what the gospel does. Verse 11. Therefore... Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's a racial term, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But but now in Christ Christ, You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. And so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. With the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure is being joined together. And grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him. You also. Are being built together into a dwelling place for God. By the spirit. Which means in the church. Jesus is shed blood. And the brokenness of his body has actually broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So racially speaking, we can be unified together under the gospel. And not only that, but those who are socially, socioeconomically divergent, those who have and have not, we're unified under the gospel. And the different ages... I keep asking or I keep having people ask me all the time, what are you going to do about getting young people in the church? And I said, the same thing I'm doing to get old people in the church, preach the gospel. (laughs) If we only have young white folks in the church, how does that demonstrate the gospel? Why do I love Golden Hills? Multi-ethnic. multi-generational. And so I, I, I don't have to say with any kind of embarrassment, I preach at a church that week in, week out, displays the beauty of the gospel. So generations... Let's worship together. Races, different cultures, let's worship together. For Jesus bought all of us. Father, this is a gospel issue. Racism is a gospel issue. laboring for the poor, the marginalized, is a gospel issue. So I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased in the preaching of the gospel week in and week out here at Golden Hills, transform our hearts by the Spirit. God, unite us as a church that we are being built as a dwelling place for God. God, would you be pleased to manifest yourself every single week in this place as we gather For the gathering of your saints is not an idle thing. It is a supernatural endeavor. And those who don't gather with us miss out. So God, I pray, bring us week in and week out to gather under your name for the preaching, the praying, and the singing of the gospel. And in so doing, transform us by its power. And God, would you cause us as a church to have an impact in our world for your glory and for our joy.